everyone. Welcome to the film room. Welcome to part two of this year's Hitchcocktober. This week we are talking about another Jimmy Stewart uh, Hitchcock uh, collaboration and entitled Rear Window. This is probably, I would argue, behind Psycho and the Birds, the most parodied of Hitchcock's works. Oh, yeah. And probably more than the Birds, to be honest, because with the Birds, people usually just do that one shot. With this one, people usually parody the entire story. What was the most recent movie to completely just rip off this one? Disturbia. That's the one. That was so much like this one that the estate of uh, Cornell Woolrich, which uh, the uh, writer of the original short story, they sued. Oh, wow. They lost, but they probably should have won. I did not see the movie, but I saw enough. Like, I saw the trailers. I did see, like, bits and pieces of it, and it's like, yeah, this is Rear Window. This is straight up. No, I've actually heard it's pretty good. I've, I've never seen it, but I've actually heard it's pretty good. It'd make a, a decent remake anyway. Yeah. So, I mean, it is it is very possible to, uh, you know, to do it. I mean, the uh, but like in terms of parodies, here's how omnipresent the parodies are. Um, Amanda and I were watching Raising Hope the other night, and there was a par- and there was a parody of this pretty thorough parody at that. They were ripping off things like costumes. Yeah, this this is a film that has, uh, especially on, what's her name, Lisa? Lisa? Yeah. Uh, yeah, and her character is, uh, especially, she's a, I think she's supposed to be a fashion model. Something like that. She's involved in the fashion world. But yeah, she, she has a very, not extensive, but very eye-catching wardrobe. Mm-hmm. Again, Edith Head. Yeah. And of course, clothing, uh, Grace Kelly, for God's sake. I think... Pretty much most of us, though, if we ask if you ask your average person which parody they know the best, let's face it, they're all going to think about Flanders and uh, the plant. Yeah. But I saw the murder, and then I saw you bury the corpse in the backyard! All right, it's true. I am a murderer. <gasps> I overwatered Maud's favorite ficus plant, I panicked, and then I buried the remains. <gasps> but I heard a woman scream. Huh? One of that I can't explain. Found it, Chief. I realized uh, last night while watching it that Venture Brothers made a reference to Rear Window. That just completely missed me. The truth serum should have taken effect by now. Mandalay! Wake him. Now! <clears throat> State your name! Reading from top to bottom. Lisa. Carol. Fremont. Ah. Uh. It's telling the truth. As I said, this is one that had a huge impact on the culture. It was a fairly sizable hit at the box office. Um, it was it was one of the five movies that uh, Hitchcock's estate took away for a period, which I'm a little, I'm a little less sure on this one because, as I said, it was very successful. Uh, Hitchcock was actually nominated for uh, Best Director uh, at the Oscars and, of course, lost. Uh, again, uh, that would be the case every single time. Which baffles me. Maybe it's maybe it's just from a history perspective, but it baffles me. Yeah, again, that's a subject for another day. Subject for another day. Oh, yeah. It, it's interesting because on pretty much all of these films, as I've been doing research into them, 
they almost all seem to have like really interesting complex stories either before or after uh, the film's release you know especially after in the case of Vertigo this one was pretty straightforward this one pretty straightforward and I think that befits the film this is probably one of the best-known examples cinematically of what's referred to as a bottle episode. And yeah, for all you Community fans out there. Mm. I didn't know that that's what that was called until Community. But yeah, it all takes place on one set, and it is an elaborate set. It is. There's actually a life-size back alley he built for this, just to be viewed from one perspective. Mm-hmm. It's kind of amazing. It really is. Um, Hitchcock really put work into making it so that it all lined up, so that the eye lines all fit, and to give us that sense of confinement. God, even, it's not just all windows, there's even that, that little sliver of street that you can see it has so much detail in, in it, and it's not very big, but you know, it, it gives you a sense of life. You know, in, in this day where green screens are the norm for everything, which, okay, there's obviously been example after example where it actually works, but I'm sorry, this is a movie that's a testament to the value of a good, of a good solid set. As noted, it was such a complex set. Um, they actually had to excavate the floor of the soundstage to make the whole thing work. Wow. So, in fact, the main apartment was actually on street level. Hmm. But again, thanks to thanks to solid perspective work, you don't notice that. That's amazing. Yeah. The plot of the film is, again, fittingly enough, this is a very straightforward film. This is, this is just an extraordinarily straightforward film. Unlike with Vertigo, where the plot twists and tangles in various directions... This one is a straight line through and through. Yeah, this is a murder plot from an outside perspective. Jimmy Stewart, you know, has broken his leg. He's a photographer. I love also uh, that Hitchcock wordlessly gives you all you need to know in one shot just looking around his apartment. It's it's a brilliant shot. You see, you see him in the wheelchair with the cast. Uh, you pan over and see, like, some really good photographs. And one of a racetrack in the middle of a wreck coming right at the camera. Before that, you see the, you see the broken camera. Like, it's completely... The camera's completely wrecked. And you can, of course, infer that uh, he managed to salvage the film from it. And, of course, that's what broke his leg. And looking at the shot, you just kind of have to go, Yeah, that was worth it. Yeah, worth it. <laughs> and it, it also makes you wonder exactly what Hitchcock did to get that photo. I would love to know. I, I really would love to to know. Perhaps it was a mock-up or something, but... Yeah. It's also just as likely that it was that Hitchcock might have just been looking through photographs and had the story crafted. True. Because, I mean, it, it looks good, and I... As I said, uh, you know, you're, you're talking about his job as a photographer. There's a wonderful detail early on where he gets a call from uh, his employer saying, look, I need you to get over to the cashmere. There's interesting photos going on. You know, there's a lot going on right now. And I kind of had to not really laugh, but that was kind of a dark laugh for me because for the unaware, um, I'm a page designer at the newspaper in Little Rock. 
by trade, and I have access to the AP wire on a daily basis. I work with the AP wire every single night of my job. And so right now, at this very moment, that, that line would be just accurate because there have been a number of very interesting photos from that region. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> so I, when I heard that, I was like, ooh, because I've run, I've run at least one. And we've had several stories on what's going on in that part of the world. So it's kind of interesting to me because this, here's a movie that, what's, what the film was from 54, wasn't it? But the point is, 60 years between when this film was made and today, things don't change. No. I hate, I hate to say it, but the Middle East is one area that, Instability is the stability for that area because we mentioned this on uh, the Sherlock cast. Mm-hmm. So again, I just th- there it was another thing that I thought was interesting. But uh, as was noted, Stewart's character is a photographer. Um, he's a war veteran, like Stewart himself was. Stewart, of course, was a highly decorated war veteran. Actually, I was reading about his military career uh, the other night. Uh, kind of amazing. And it lasted into the Vietnam War, actually. He he flew missions in the Vietnam War. Uh, I think uh, aid missions in the Vietnam War. That's... wow. Yeah. Yeah, he retired as a brigadier general. <laughs> wow. And, and I bring this up because it gives Stuart's character that plausibility. That Stuart himself was someone who was... Uh, in fact, he actually did not qualify for the war effort at all. And uh, in World War II, and he fought to get in. He found ways around it and made himself qualify uh, and became a decorated pilot. His war era is one of the most fascinating that you can read up on. So, you know, it, so it makes sense that, that that bit of Stuart's real life carries over. I believe that this character would probably be miserable in confinement. And boy, is he. And so, of course, his only fun that he gets... Is when uh, his girlfriend comes over. And I got I want to talk about that relationship, because that one really struck me. I was watching a bit with my dad last night, and he's just flat out said, what is it with Hitchcock and not being satisfied with women? Yeah! And it's like, yeah? <laughs> this is This is a relationship that, to be perfectly blunt, when this film is over the relationship will probably end very shortly. Oh yeah, it's heavily suggested. These are two characters that really have no business being together and don't even particularly seem to like each other. Weirdly enough. You know, and it's one of those, it's one of those, she is seemingly perfect. She is uh, everything that uh, most men would look for in a woman. She's attractive, she's a model, she's very wealthy. She is... A socialite. She's highly intelligent. Highly intelligent, yes. Definitely has an adventurous side. Oh god, yeah. Not, I'll travel to the Congo with you on these dangerous missions. Uh, adventurous, but yes. But these two characters, I mean, pretty much every time that they're on screen, and it's not that Stuart and Kelly don't have chemistry. They have decent chemistry. Oh, they do. It's just that these two characters have no business being in a relationship. And I, I just, I found that so entertaining. That cynicism about this relationship. That 
uh, behind her back, he talks about her as just, it's like, I just don't care about her. Right. There, There's almost a feeling of social obligation. It's like, well, I guess I should be with her. I am successful. She's successful. We should be together, right? That's how this works. It's it's really kind of funny because you watch movie after movie where they force the love interests together. And I have to admit, I kind of enjoyed watching this thriller where the characters just really, they just don't have it. There's no, there's no sense that this relationship should be going on. Right. If anything, I, I, I hate to say it, but I felt like, if anything, he had better chemistry with... Uh, the uh, his nurse played by uh, Thelma Ritter, and that's probably because she's a little bit closer in age to him than he is to. That's uh, true. Once again, and what's funny is the age difference between Stewart and Kelly is four is twenty one years. It was twenty five years between him and Kim Novak. I'm sorry. Once you cross the twenty year mark, you're kind of splitting hairs unless you're adding an extra decade. Right. I think part of the reason maybe why Hitchcock wasn't so quick to blame it was, as I said, the film was a hit. And because Stewart just frankly, it's funny, he's crippled in this film, but he seems more vital. I don't know why, but it just seems like in the four years between these two films, Stewart did seem, I don't know. I think maybe it's because the two characters are different. Uh, Jeff, the photographer, seems driven by life. You don't you don't get that with Ferguson and Vertigo. He seems like someone who's pretty much given up. Yeah. So I don't know. Maybe I'm just reading the themes into it. Yeah. But anyway, let's get back to the nurse because she is such a wonderful character. Uh, at this point, can we almost agree that, with the exception of North by Northwest, there's always a beta female in Hitchcock's movies that, or at least that's starting to be a trend that I'm seeing. I think you're right. Um, even as early as Strangers on a Train, which is a movie that kind of borders his early and late years, uh, there's that. In that in that film, you know, there are two female characters with glasses, and of course, you you know, anybody who knows film or just a like sort of character design, they know that glasses can mean either an interesting perspective on life, or if the glasses are like really hideous, a warped perspective. One of the female characters with glasses is just a tramp, like is kind of horrible, um, and she has those really huge distorted glasses. And the other character with glasses is, uh, yeah, the beta female. But yeah, even as early as that, I think you're right. I mean, I'm just noticing that this is a theme that's showing up because you've got Vera Miles in Psycho, you've got uh, Belgettis in uh, Vertigo, and then you've got Ritter here. They're never embarrassing stereotypes. These are always very strong women. Ritter here is the one who, she's talking plain, simple, common sense. She's mm-hmm. brassy in the best way. And she gets, she's fun. She's fun in this movie. I, I really liked her performance. For all of um, Hitchcock's problem with women, I think those characters are the ones that... that keep his films from being blatantly misogynist. <laughs> I hate to say. It, it's funny. I think Hitchcock has the <clears throat> the same issues that uh, Woody Allen has in that there's definitely a, a an intense misogynistic streak to his work that you can't overlook. Right. But at the same time, 
just as Hitchcock created so many memorable roles, think about how many women have won Oscars because they worked for Woody Allen. This is true. In fact, I'll almost always kind of find that uh, karma's sweet uh, kick in the pants to Allen. <laughs> Although, of course, a male, at least one male, has won for his for one of his films, uh, Michael Caine. I would argue, not that it has anything to do with the analogy, because you are absolutely right. I would argue that Woody Allen is a bit more messed up. Oh, Woody Allen is far more messed up. Individual. Woody Allen is a warped, sick individual, and uh, I... I have no desire to see any more of his films than I've seen. That's that's the long yeah. and short of it. I don't I don't know what to say about the the allegations. I'm not going to comment on if I think they're true or not. I'm going to say there's enough evidence in his films to go on ahead and walk away. It's just one of those things you look at and go, "Whoa, I want no part of this." Yeah, it's like you start to you start to see the pattern, um, which is a shame because uh, Midnight in Paris was phenomenal. He's a great filmmaker. He's a genius filmmaker. But Jesus. I know. Uh, so was, uh... <laughs> not to bring a damper on it. Yeah, it's a very cynical take on voyeurism. And kind of, a, it's kind of a meta thing in that way. Because, you know, watching movies is about satisfying, uh, you know, your sense of voyeurism. You know, just just watching other people's lives. Exactly. Something that really doesn't have anything to do with you. This is this is very definitely the closest Hitchcock came to ever making a movie about what it is, about his own job. Uh, right. And that shows in the fact the main character is a photographer. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. This is true. You know, and he always has those uh, binoculars, which you know kind of resemble in a way camera lenses. You know, he's, he's basically watching his neighbors because he has nothing better to do. And and each little uh, group of neighbors has a little story that's going on. Each of them has, like, a little resolution. You know, not all, but... You've got the uh, the woman who is just desperately lonely and sad. Yeah, and he, he gives them each a name, too. Ms. Lowly Hearts. You've got the dancer. Mm -hmm. I forgot what he calls her. Uh, Miss Torso. Miss Torso, that's right. I read rather entertainingly that the actress was ordered not to take dance lessons before doing the film. Really? So that she could seem like an amateur. Right. You've got the uh, songwriter. Tell our listening audience what you told me last night about that songwriter. Yes, the songwriter is a fellow by the name of Ross Bagdasarian. If you grew up in the 80s, that name might seem familiar to you. Or in the 60s, too. Uh... <laughs> Bagdasarian was, in reality, a songwriter. Uh, I think he only has, like, what, one line in the film? In reality, he was a musician, and he was best known for doing a pair of novelty songs. Uh, the first was Witch Doctor, and, this, and uh, the second, and this is the one that we all really know, this is uh, a little, uh, was a song called The Christmas Song. Sure, you mentioned that. His stage name is uh, David Seville. We should mention that his stage name was David <laughs> Seville. Yes, the creator of Alvin and the Chipmunks is in a Hitchcock movie. As a songwriter. As a songwriter. Amazing. Yeah. I, I love that. Incidentally, that's where uh, his apartment is where you'll get the Hitchcock cameo. Nice. Uh, he's seen uh, fiddling with a clock in that scene. 
that's the apartment that you can see the most into because it's like a big studio apartment with like a huge window. But uh, you know, you've got all these wonderful little stories that are, that play out over the course of the film. You've got a pair of newlyweds who seem just impossibly happy, and so of course their resolution at the end of the film is that they're bickering like everybody else. You've got the uh, beautiful young woman who, you know, I loved the resolution to that story, which is that she's seen entertaining all these men, but by God, we finally, but she never really seems to be in love with any of them, and we find out why when her true love comes home from the army. <laughs> and he's a short, fat guy. Yeah. <laughs> nice unexpected turn there. But... Let's face it, none of these are the apartments that we really care about. Let's get up to the apartment of uh, the Thorwalds. Yeah, it's it's a brilliantly staged apartment, too, because it's three windows. One is of the hallway, one is the bedroom, and one is the living room. And, you know, the bedroom, you can see the wife, she is uh, sick. Yeah, she is bedridden. And, uh, you know, you can see that he's taking care of her. He brings her dinner. There's just a definite sense of tension there. These are, there's, yeah. you definitely can tell this is not a happy relationship. It's funny because, like, the the murder moment is so kind of understated uh -huh. in a way because, you know, it's just, he's just, uh, you know, scanning the, you know, the back alley one more time just before he goes to, like, goes to bed and uh, you just, you hear a... There's no hubbub about it, it's just there. And he just kind of looks and goes, what? There has to be, because so much of the film rests on the idea of, did he actually see what he thought he saw? Right, exactly. Um, well, I mean, obviously he did, there's no movie if he didn't. It becomes a little less and less of a mystery as it goes on. Yeah. Yeah. But the guy is behaving very suspiciously. Yeah, let's talk about the guy for a moment, uh, because even though he only gets one real scene of dialogue, um, he was uh, a noted actor. This was uh, Raymond Burr, Perry Mason. Mm-hmm. And you, uh, I told you, have I told you the story of why he was hired? I know the story, but t let's let's tell the listeners because it's <laughs> funny. Okay, we have to go back a little bit. I think Cracked Dan Arkell, I'll, I'll, yes. we'll post that. But going back to Hitchcock's early days of uh, coming to American cinema, like, you know, he he's British, of course, he did a bunch of films in Britain, and then he came to America to work under David O. Selznick, notorious producer behind films like Gone with the Wind, and so on and so forth. Uh, Hitchcock's first American film would be Rebecca. He was at such odds with the producer that... To his death, Hitchcock denounced the film, denied having any, you know having anything to do with it, just disowned it. You know he he was under contract with him for a few films, and when he finally got free, he was a you know he worked for Paramount and got out on his own. Uh, this was a this was a Paramount picture, and basically he used this opportunity to get revenge on his old producer. Uh, he hired Raymond Bird specifically because he looked just like David O. Selznick. <laughs> That's pretty vicious, uh, and also funny because Burr is a very intimidating presence. Uh, you know, after all, this was not an actor without some acclaim. He, I mean, for God's sake, this was Steve Martin in the American Godzilla. This was Perry Mason. This, you know, 
this was a very noted actor that Hitchcock should have been looking to to cast under any circumstances, and he chose to do it out of the pettiest of reasons. I just, I love that. <laughs> I, I have to love that. And I should note, I might be wrong. Uh, those projects, um, well, actually, Godzilla was, uh, the American Godzilla would come after this, uh, I know, and Perry Mason might have too. You mean, the, by the American, you mean the American redub of the... The American redub, um, of course. I have to take this back. Uh, Perry Mason wasn't until after. was not until after. Oh, yeah, that was like the 60s, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. The, the, the point is, Burr was a damn good actor, and it was a good choice. Yes. I, I also, I have to acknowledge the fact that Burr did very well to play characters who were hiding secrets that they kept. Um, in real life, that was kind of Burr's story, to be perfectly blunt. Yeah. Yeah, in, in real life, he, he, he fabricated a very extensive backstory for himself to cover up parts of his life, if you will. Interesting. You understand what I'm getting at, I hope. Sort of, kind of. I don't know much about the man's life. Um, Burr famously fabricated a story about having a uh, having lost a son and having been married once and lost a son. And in truth, he was only married once very briefly. Uh, Burr was gay. Ah, uh, yeah. I gotcha. So, so, I mean, it has to be acknowledged he did very well, you know, knowing that knowing that now as a modern viewer does give that part some interesting resonance. And I mean that in a good way. I mean that in a very good way. Uh, Burr's Thorwald is pretty damn terrifying, to be blunt. When we get to uh, Rope, which I know we probably will, if not next year, then the year after that, yeah. um, there are unfortunately some... It was the 60s, so it was still kind of a weird type they were, of area. They were adapting Leopold and Loeb, that's all you need to say. Yeah, yeah, and that and that theme does come through, and not in a very flattering light. Of course it doesn't. The Leopold and Loeb case doesn't cut through in a flattering light. Yeah, yeah. I'm just acknowledging the history. Um, So, he kills her, uh, which we won't know for sure until the end of the film, but... Much of the film then becomes about trying to find evidence, trying to find the clues. And so much of the clues are circumstantial, because we're limited in our perspective. We only get to see a little bit of, you know, the little bits of his behavior, which is definitely suspicious. Um, we find out that he's been leaving the house late at night. And, uh, you know, he's been taking out uh, his briefcase and making numerous small trips at night. Which, when you realize what's really gone on, is pretty graphic. Yeah, it is pretty graphic, yeah. The movie doesn't quite make it as loud as they could, but... Right. He's been disposing of her body. Yeah. If you put two and two together, it's pretty gruesome. Yeah, I think one of the big tip-offs was the dog. Mm-hmm. That one of the neighbors likes to... Uh, like, I think her real only real story arc is... Uh, that she lets her dog out, and uh, she does so by putting him in a basket, lowering him down to floor level. And when he's done, you know, he jumps the basket, comes back up. Well, the dog snoops around a bit too much in the neighbor's garden, and uh, smells something. And of course, you know, uh, Raymond Burr catches him, and uh, well, disposes of him. And this, 
the scene in which she finds this out is really some powerful stuff. Oh yeah, it's it's heartbreaking. But it of course contains a key piece of evidence because what happens is all of the neighbors come to the window. And in that moment you sense this entire community that we've only just been on the edge of. Right. In that moment we quickly sense the fuller community and um, all but one person comes to the to their window. Uh, Thorwald just smokes it up. Oh yeah, yeah. And that's uh, that's a brilliant piece of uh, uh, cinematography too. All you can see are the two reflections in his glasses. Again, glasses. Yeah. And the the lit tip of the cigar. It's 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 a chilling sequence, and of course, this is the moment where Stuart just knows beyond any doubt he had to do it. Again, it's funny. We're tra- if you're to try and identify a MacGuffin in this film. You're not really going to find one. The MacGuffin is actually important in this the, one. The thing that all the characters are so interested in is the thing that you're interested in, which is the murder. I mean, that's the closest thing the film has, but that's also the central plot. It's kind of hard to say that that's the thing that gets the action going because all the action is directly driven by that thing. And all the motivations, all the interests, all the things that we as the viewer care about are bound up in that. We want to know if he did it, and if he didn't do it, there's really not much film, so mm-hmm. we we want we want it proven, and it's chilling. It's it's very chilling. It's a weird haunting moment when like the guy that he's been seeing through uh, binoculars and through windows all this time uh, actually comes up to his apartment mm-hmm. and uh, asks what he wants, and it's you know. At the same time, you know, it makes it it makes it all the more real. Uh, it's very it's a very weird uh, scene, you know, because a he's confirming that he's basically done this thing, and uh, b you know he's right there. Like it's it's like you weren't involved before. Oh, you're involved now. Well, uh, before we before we get to that sequence, we we need to talk about that brilliant sequence where Kelly sneaks into his apartment. Oh yeah, that's right. Because that sequence really needs to be studied in the fullest depth. That is a masterpiece of staging, of mm-hmm. you know how everything is handled. Again, the three the three windows in that. It, it begins with uh, Stuart uh, luring uh, Thorwald out of the apartment, which uh, he leaves. Kelly goes in. She snoops around. She finds evidence. She finds the wedding ring. I mean, so much of the film is them debating based on what evidence they have, and there's good explanations either way. Near as we can tell, the plot seems to be that Thorwald and a female accomplice had, like, the female accomplice pretended to be his wife and get on the train. Details like that to make it look as if she'd gone away on vacation and to satisfy everybody. But we don't see any of this. We're really, at the end of the day, it's kind of funny how little we actually know about the murder and about his motivations. We don't know his motivations for certain. I mean, we really don't know all that much about the... the, Maybe I'm missing some things, and I'm sure I am, and everybody can feel free to write in and tell us. But, like, I noticed that. It is a very piecemeal. You're only getting it from from one angle. And it's a very skewed angle, fittingly enough. That fits into the themes because, you know, he's talking to the detective and 
the detective says, do you do things in your private life that, like, just on your own that you can't, for life, you explain to an outside world? The answer is yes, everybody does. So, you know, all these piecemeal things, they could mean anything. They could. It's just, it's just that the hell of it is that he's correct. Right. Uh, seriously, the this is such a common theme. Um, and, you know, so getting back to that one scene, really, you just, it, it, it's a testament to the work that they did on the stage, you know, on just the plotting and building of it. And then, of course, this tips Thorwald off as to what's going on. As you noted, he sees him. And that scene, that confrontation is amazing. Uh, mm -hmm. Burr has that great, deep voice that makes him terrifying. These are very unnerving presence in this film. What's interesting is Hitchcock said that uh, in a later interview that, yeah, he agreed. He agreed with Thorwald in this scene. It's like, you, you don't have any right to interfere with my business. Even though the guy had committed a murder, it was his business. Right. <laughs> this outsider had no business meddling in his affairs. Yeah. And he's right. Sort of. Yeah. Because because what if he hadn't committed a murder? Then there would be no question about what's right and what's wrong in this situation. Yeah, there would be just you you snooped into my shit and that's that. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's impossible for me to think about the themes of this movie and not be thinking about where we stand in the modern age with digital technology. Oh, God, yeah. I'm loath to bring up current events, but it's impossible for me. I don't know. We won't mention it by name. We won't mention it by name, but suffice it to say, the grand invasion of privacy, as we will refer yeah. to it. The fact that we can be so casual about these things... And what's unnerving is that is that it exposes something ugly about human nature that I don't think that any of us can really I don't know I'm not I don't really even want to get into that so I don't want to get into that specific issue but the theme of voyeurism the theme of prying into other people's business on a grander scale on a grander scale I mean I just think about the fact that that's something that's always going to be prevalent in human in, in discussions of human nature and I'm not trying to say that everybody's guilty or or that anybody's innocent I'm not trying to talk about anybody I'm just trying to acknowledge the fact that this is part of human nature that's rather unsettling and I, and I want to share an experience I had while watching this film on a big screen um, I got I got the opportunity to see this on the uh, the tip the screen at the Tivoli theater. In, here in Kansas City for a class like we had um, it was like it was the Hitchcock weekend class uh, taught by Dr. Poe hi Dr. Poe if you're listening where we where we watched this so I actually got to see this with professor commentary which is cool but one of the weird things like I had seen this film uh, quite a few times before seeing it in theater but you know you know, watching something in the theater and watching something at home is a completely different experience. And something I felt during this was, uh, you know, there's that scene where they're, where Stuart and uh, Kelly are watching, you know, something unfold, like watching a domestic dispute 
uh, unfold in one of the windows and ends up in tears. And uh, and that moment in a the theater, it's like you feel a moment of guilt. And it's like, oh, I'm really not supposed to be watching this. It's a movie. Yes, you are. But it's like, <laughs> It's because it reminds us of moments in our own lives. Right. I mean, for, and especially it's made so much easier now in this digital era. Um, you know, privacy can be such a, an awkward thing. Uh, uh, the, the certain, uh, scandal going on in, uh, the, uh, computer entertainment world reminds me of that. The, the fact that people seem to see no boundaries and, and it's funny how relevant this film feels today. Uh, I mean, back then, it was spying on the neighbors. Nowadays, it would be snooping on their Facebook feeds, their Instagram feeds. But even then, you know, even before, like, the digital age, there's still, like, paparazzi. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and just wanting to know everything about, you know, movie stars and just, like, the current scandals and whatnot. So there's always been that. Watch LA Confidential, people. There's truth to that movie. But yeah, it's more. I think it's more accentuated now. It's not a good thing. I mean, I don't. I'm not even gonna say that I don't know that it's a. I don't know what because I do know it's not a good thing, and and that's that's what makes this film so. You know that timeless. That, that's right. There is what makes the film as you said. It's timeless, and it gives it its potency because. Hitchcock's right. Even though uh, Thorwald is a murderer, he's still correct. I mean, the the morality of this film is still... Like, what I find so funny is that pretty much every single character in the film, uh, aside from Stewart's character, who, keep in mind, he's a photographer by trade. His job is capturing reality. I, again, I don't feel like that's an accident, that... Uh, you know, thematically, that's brilliant. That his job is to capture... Like, they talk about him going over to the Kashmir. Yeah, I know. I've seen what kind of photos come out of that. And, as I said, they're, they're first-rate photos. But then you step back and you think to yourself... Uh, some of the photos that I've seen have been, like, walls pierced by bullets and such. And it's news. It's absolutely news, and the world does need to know about it. But then you step back and you think to yourself, that's these people's lives. That's these people's... Right. And as I said, I'm not, saying that, I'm not saying that I feel any moral awkwardness about my job. I, no, it's, it's news. It is important. But it does remind us that we are looking in at human beings. So, yeah. you know. And seriously, I just want to pause to note. Next time anybody's reading, anybody who's hearing this gets the chance... Look at the names of these AP photographers and keep in mind the work that these people have to do to capture some of these shots. Um, some of these guys are rock stars to me. There are guys out there in the Ukraine who I am just in continual awe of. Yeah, it's something you don't really think about. But yeah, those, um, uh, whenever you see the up, up close and personal photos of dangerous situations, somebody had to be there. And I mean, again, I think. And, and capture that. And I just I think that that's an interesting thematic element running through it. And, I mean, as I said, I, I obviously see a world of difference between being a war photographer 
you know, in terms of the ethics of it. There's an importance. There's a value to that. You know, there's... And I, I feel like that's kind of what Hitchcock is dealing with here. You know, the more that I think about it, the more that I'm glad that I got on this line of discussion, because that does kind of carry over to the theme of it. It is important that these people paid attention to what was going on. It is important that they looked at it. It is important that they're staring at this situation, but it does come from a fundamental place of looking in at somebody else's life. The difference is that, yeah, this one time it is important, but most of the other situations they really should close the damn blinds. Yeah. <laughs> but again, what I think is so funny about the film is that the characters are constantly like, oh, you should, uh, you know, the nurse and... Uh, Kelly's character, they're always like, oh, we shouldn't be looking, we shouldn't be looking. And they still do. And they still do. They still immediately do. There's, I love that hypocrisy. Yeah. And by the end, they're all completely involved. They're all completely involved. I mean, involved, involved. They're going in, they're digging up, they're breaking and entering, which... Okay, there's no gray area there. They shouldn't be doing that. Oh, no. <laughs> That's a felony. But it's just, I mean, it's fascinating to me that Hitchcock really plays with our sense of morality on this film and wants us to think about that. Um, that's what I think gives this film its fundamental raw power is, is that we are in a, a morally gray area. What would we do? I don't know. You know, one observation I want to make is that I'm a fan of true crime books and TV shows, and admittedly a lot of those are probably not on the classier side, but I love them anyway. I get it. If I thought there was a murder going on in my neighborhood, I'm not going to say I wouldn't be interested. Yeah, and that is the whole point. I mean, it's the, it's he's dealing with the side of us that stops, that uh, slows down through a car accident scene. Sure, part of it is that we want to make sure that we're doing the safe thing and, you know, not dodging, but it's also the side of us that wants to look and see what's going on. I mean, come on, don't tell me you've never rubbernecked at a car accident. Oh, yeah. Even even when I tell myself not to. Even when you tell yourself not to, you still do it. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. As I said, it's interesting. It's interesting that the film brings this out in us, that discussion. Um, and it, again, technically, it's brilliantly done. Um, I love the way that uh, Hitchcock plays with lenses. Yeah. And focuses and, you know... It's a beautifully shot film. It is. Uh, it is. Um, you know, the, the way that he will go from, say, the standard one... I saw this was in 166 uh, widescreen. Mm -hmm. The way that he'll go from that to uh, a circular lens. And, you yeah. know, to convey the binoculars or a telescope or, you know, the camera. He, he plays so much with what we're seeing. I love that. That's a stop and think about how difficult the staging of this film must have been. Like, just to orchestrate all the action. Sometimes, you know, multiple apartments at the same time, you know, all to be coordinated. But, you know, the camera is an entire set's length from the, uh, from where the action is. Are you aware of how they did that? I have no idea. Oh, well, that's, that's, a, that is actually an interesting detail that I picked up. Um, Hitchcock, of course, was in Jeff's apartment. And he was using radio. All the actors in the other apartments had um, earpieces that were subtly oh. concealed. So I see. Hitchcock directed them from there. Nice. That was how they did it. 
That's pretty cool. It is. You know, especially for the 50s, you know, everyone having earpieces is not as easy as it sounds today. No, it's not. I mean, nowadays this would be very easy to do. But back then, they really did a good job working with what they had. Um, it helped that, you know, obviously, I'm sure this was probably a meticulously practiced film, too. Oh, God, yeah. I mean, this this honestly feels more like a theater piece at times than it does a film. Once again, when we get to Rope, mm-hmm. that's uh, technically difficult for a, com- for a completely different reason. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Uh, I'm, I'm familiar with what Hitchcock tried to do there. The way the film was shot, really, it is unique. Uh, the uh, DVD that I watched was the 1999 Restoration, which they pretty much did for most of Hitchcock's films. Normally, when I rent films online, I don't uh, rent them in HD, like if it gives me the option, just because it's cheaper. For this one, I des- uh, I decided it definitely deserved an HD watch. Oh, yeah. And it was worth it. One thing we should note is that uh, music is that the most of the music in the film is what's referred to as diegetic. Yeah, it's uh, which in layman's terms is of course the music is coming from the frame. Yeah, it's coming from inside the action. Uh, there is a score over the opening titles and uh, a little bit of music at the end, um, not by Herman. We should note this was uh, Franz Waxman who would also collaborate with Hitchcock a bit. Um, uh, I want to say this was his final score for Hitchcock. You know, music, I I like the way that that works. It really helps to cement the feeling that we're in this situation. That's another thing I wanted to bring up before we left, was the sound design in this is brilliant. It is amazing. It's It's something I never really thought about before now. But, you know, just the way... When when the neighbors talk, like when they're in their apartments, uh, you you hear basically what you would be hearing if you were from Jimmy Stewart's vantage point, which is just just enough to know kind of the context of the situation, but you're not really hearing all the dialogue very clearly. Yeah, and it's all it's all over an echo. Uh, it's nicely done. There's just so much greatness uh, in that in the technical level here. It really is an interesting. You know, how much Hitchcock wanted you to be in that moment, in that world. There's there's very little impressionism in the film, uh, you know. Oh, no. Yeah, it's all, it's all very concrete and very viscerally real. You know, I feel bad because I've, you know, whereas I had such to, so much to say about Stuart the last time, I don't have as much to say this time except that he's great as always. Oh, yeah. Oh yeah, great performance. Really, nobody's bad in the film. Far from it. Far from it. Everybody's really good. Uh, as I said, his relationship with uh, Kelly may not be the warmest, but that's how it's written. Interestingly enough, uh, Kelly's part did not exist in the original short story that it was based on, so the screenwriter actually was ordered to spend some time with Kelly to make it. You know, And he based that character on her. A lot of her real personality seeped into that character. As I said, she's good here. She's She's got a nice spark to her. Even though she is about as classically the blonde as you would expect, she's got a nice spark to her. There's a lot to go over in this film, and I don't know. I mean, Hitchcock's films are... They're, they're fascinating in that way. You know, this is the fourth one now that we've done, and 
it is interesting how much they are, how much there is to pick on them, how much there is to study in them. Yeah, he is. He remains one of the most fascinating directors ever to live. I need to seek out the uh, Truffaut and Hitchcock book. Truffaut is another is another uh, director I really really love. What's it called? I I think the, the name of the book is Truffaut on Hitchcock. So it's a uh, it's a book written by Truffaut uh, about Hitchcock. It's a book that he wrote with of interviews with Hitchcock. Oh, that's awesome. Again, there's just so much there to pick apart, but at the end of the day, the film works probably best on the level that it works on it, which is it is it is a damned good thriller. It is a really good suspenseful, scary film, and it's fun. Yeah, I love the fact that this this year we went from a very very impressionistic film to a very straightforward uh, realistic film. Yeah, this is just a damned fun one to watch. Uh, as I said, it's one that it's been parodied so much because it is still so resonant. It doesn't take much to make this plot uh, adapt. I should note this one has had a remake. Uh, uh, 1998 for uh, made for TV with yeah 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 I remember when that came out uh, with Christopher Reeves yeah uh, which obviously the case there was that he was a quadriplegic I've I've never really read I mean I think I saw a bit of it but I don't really remember the re- the reaction to it I think was kind of like oh it's nice that Reeves is back acting <laughs> and I didn't really hear uh, yeah I I've never really heard it spoken of much beyond. Oh, that it was Reeves' last major role. Well, it was nice that he was able to do that. It was nice but... that he was able to do it, but I kind of hate to use the word that has to be used. It was a, it was a gimmick, let's face it. Yeah. Which is a yeah. shame, because Reeves has done multiple films as an actor in which he did uh, do legitimate homages to Hitchcock. You know, he did a pretty healthy amount of those in his day, uh including most notoriously uh, death trap that's that you know getting back on the film it's it's a shame uh you know the, as i said the remake i've never heard any particular reason to watch it it was you know i i, I don't feel any drive to um as i said this one's readily available it's not hard to find oh yeah one of the things that sticks out in my mind about the um the background design for Scott Pilgrim the comic um mm-hmm. is is that uh, Ramona, uh, in her room, has a poster of Rear Window. Hmm. And that also carries over into the film, I believe. Yeah. But that was one. that's one of the things that just most prominently sticks out in my mind about. It always uh, uh, comes uh, back to Scott Pilgrim. Oh yeah! <laughs> this train don't stop! It doesn't. It doesn't. <laughs> uh... Side note, <laughs> highly recommend Brian Lee O'Malley's new book. I highly recommend it. Oh, God, yeah. It's wonderful. Um, it's, it's, wonderful. it's called Seconds. It's brilliant. It's, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. It's, it's beautiful. It's, it's great. So um, I guess we should talk about what we're going to be doing next. Next. Uh, next up is, holy shit. I believe that is Marvel, actually. It is. For realsies this time. For real. For real. This time it's actually yeah. going to happen. Y'all... Let, we should pause to note, it isn't exactly a well-kept secret that September kind of knocked us around a bit, y'all. Uh, I had some things that I had to take care of, which are addressed in episode 26. 
you know, they're addressed there. And so, you know, if you want to know, I had some things to take care of. They're taken care of. Um, and we're back on track. And we're getting back on track by going back to, uh, we're going back to Marvel next. Um, last, last November, we looked at all the Marvel films. This year, there have been four more in the time since. Yeah. There isn't enough this time to fill a whole month, but we can do a follow-up. Yeah, there's enough, There's easily uh, enough for a full episode. Oh, yeah. I believe the record was two hours on that one. Yeah. Uh, I don't know how long the episode will be. It always it always varies. It occurs to me It occurs to me that by this point, they're pretty much going to be spoiled on what we thought on Guardians of the Galaxy, but that's okay. Because <laughs> we've already discussed that one. Yeah, we talk about it in depth in that, and, you know... By this time, everyone will... Well, God, by the first weekend, everybody had seen it, so... Nope, 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 not true. That's true, that's true. Not true. You saw I it hadn't. on Tuesday. I had to go ahead and go on that's Tuesday. True. That's what? true, because I was I was waiting for you to to have seen it. You can find us on our blog at thefilmroom.podbean.com, where we post the actual episode, that's the source. Uh, you can listen to it there, or you can listen on iTunes. You know, subscribe to us either way. You can find us on the companion blog at thefilmroomlobby.wordpress.com. Uh, there you'll find little companion pieces that aren't necessarily cast material, but they relate very heavily, and um, just little little side thoughts. Uh, you can you can find us on the twitters at uh, at filmroomcast. I am at prodevanprd. And Austin is at Untitled User. You can find us and like us on Facebook. We recommend you do so. That gives us a more accurate count of who listens, and uh, or at least follows us. Facebook.com slash The Film Room. So you can email us with you know, suggestions, love mail, hate mail, uh, general comments on the cast. You know, what, what do you think? You know, add, to, add to the overall conversation. We're not against uh, adding on to uh, old casts. So, yeah, uh, email us there. Uh, you can email us there at uh, filmroompodcast.gmail.com. Well, until then, happy Hitchcocktober and happy Halloween. Sinister-looking kid is coming to kill me. Help! Help! Help!